Future Church, Chapter 10, The Law of Development. Real church growth is about growing people, not managing programs. Richard Conwisher, the senior pastor of Peachtree Church in Atlanta, is a proud dog owner. One time, Rich started training Shasta, a mini Australian shepherd, that he got his girls for Christmas. But he felt that he needed professional help to go the rest of the way, so he hired a dog trainer. When the trainer came to Rich's house, Rich wanted to get him up to speed on Shasta's progress. So Rich demonstrated for the trainer what he was already able to get his dog to do, sit, roll over, and so on. After the demonstration, Rich expected the trainer to give him an attaboy for his amateur dog training prowess, but he was disappointed. Instead, the trainer deflated him. Your dog is not trained, the trainer said. He just knows a few tricks. Training versus trying versus tricks. When Rich absorbed what the dog trainer told him, a light bulb turned on in his mind. He wondered if something similar could be said of the millions of Jesus followers in churches across North America. Your attenders are not trained. They just know a few church tricks. They know how to sing along with the songs on Sunday morning. They know how to pray out loud with holy talk that everyone else uses. They know how to interact in a small group study. They might know how to give an acceptable percentage of their income. But does that mean they display automatic responses in the way of Jesus in their daily lives? More importantly, how would Rich tell the difference? Years ago, I remember John Ortberg getting at the dilemma in a somewhat different way by contrasting training and trying. Want to run a marathon? You can train or you can try. Without any training, a person can muster their gusto and run headlong into breathless collapse on the side of the road. At mile 14, they simply cannot go farther in the marathon by sheer willpower. The body pushes back. This applies to everything human beings do. Do you want to master the piano? You can train or you can try. Want to follow Jesus? You can train or you can try. You simply can't try your way into running a marathon or becoming a fine pianist. Doing these things takes discipline, repetition, progression, modeling, practice, evaluation, and accountability. Likewise, you can't try your way into a life that reflects the character and competencies of Jesus. Program Church is sneaky. Ortberg's training versus trying contrast, brilliant as it is, does not sufficiently illuminate the stealthy way that Program Church influences what we have come to expect. That's why I like the revelation of Rich's dog trainer. The difference between training and succeeding on the one hand and trying and failing on the other is obvious. But that is not the more powerful trap. We get caught more easily in the self-deception of knowing a few tricks. Rich's dog didn't appear stuck in his stunts. He appeared adorably successful with his fun, repetitive feats. Likewise, the deceptive power of program church does not give itself away to pointless trying but masks a failure of training with attendant success. We go through the program motions as if something real is happening. People learn just enough devotional devices and Jesus put-ons to offer false validation that a deeper, relational, maturing work of God is happening. Rich Conwisher's reflection is his own version of the challenged voice by the two pastors at the beginning of this book. This chapter attempts to help leaders 
find answers by examining how disciple development in future church works differently from the customs of program church. Programs don't develop people. People do. The key words in the program church development strategy are programs, addition, and teaching. In future church, these three still exist, but they fit in a broader framework whose key words are people, multiplication, and training. First, in program church, programs are made to develop people. But in future church, programs are places where people develop people. In his classic book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman summarized Jesus' ministry strategy with an explosive four-word phrase, Men were his method. Jesus' playbook is and always will be people, not programs. When the Lord is at work, you don't need heavy programs, Ray Ortland says. When the Lord isn't at work, you probably have to fake it. Discipleship programs can be valuable environments where development happens, but the program does not do the developing. Anytime a disciple truly grows in a program, it is because there is a leader relationally tied to them actively guiding them along the path, a person whose life they want to emulate. In future church, programs are not the what, but a where of disciple-making. This distinction is important because of what Jesus said about a student becoming like their teacher. When a person develops a disciple, the disciple grows into a person who develops disciples. But when a program develops a disciple, the disciple grows into a person who services programs. It is like the difference between growing a queen bee that gives birth to new life and growing a worker bee that lives to maintain the hive. The difference between the queen bee and a worker bee brings us to the second contrast between addition and multiplication. When programs are done well, they can serve increasing numbers of people. This is certainly better than subtraction, but it is not enough for the mission God designed and deploys. The first command God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis is to multiply. Our biology informs our ecclesiology and our missiology. The multiplication symbol is much more important than the plus symbol on the kingdom calculator. Jesus' method is not to add people one at a time at a steady rate. It is to impart his own life to multiple people who each would impart it to multiple others. Set against the backdrop of a global population of 7,768,734,372 at the time of this writing, addition strategies are just a drop in the bucket. We simply will not reach billions of people in danger of eternal judgment without multiplication. We were made to reproduce, not recruit. This multiplication principle is well known among church leaders, but not well applied. As I described in part one, when multiplication starts at the level of launching worship services, new campus sites, or even churches, it often skips the basic personal level of disciples multiplying disciples. The result is the apparent multiplication of God's work, but in reality, it is a program addition equivalent to a house of cards. New believers are not developed as much as existing believers are reshuffled into new places in the deck. One reason that multiplication is limited in churches is that when they add programs to help people grow, these are generally for teaching, not training. Do not misunderstand. Teaching programs have a rich and worthy basis. Jesus was a teacher, as were the apostles, and the New Testament is full of their teaching. 
Teaching and teachers are among the spiritual gifts that the Lord gave his church. But not all teaching helps people be doers of the word, not hearers only, according to James 1.22. It is also not how people are educated for practical action in other fields. For instance, you don't teach someone to swim in a classroom. You don't explain the fundamentals of swimming and share inspirational stories of swimmers and then expect people to go off on their own and swim laps that week. You teach people to swim by getting into a pool with them. Preaching and teaching in a large gathering do have value that I will define in this chapter, but you don't teach people to swim or play piano or fix a leaky faucet or do algebra or follow Jesus by telling them. You do it by showing them, coaching them, and giving them something to practice. In short, by training them. What a tire and a basement teach about development. Admittedly, the notion of training disciples can be rather intimidating to many church leaders because it is difficult to train a disciple when you have not been trained yourself. Some of us were taught to train believers. Many of us were trained to teach them. But few of us were intentionally trained to train them. But there is no need to fear. I am confident that you already know everything about development that you need to know. You may simply not know that you know it. When I was consulting with Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis and talking with its leadership team about developing disciples, I asked them to tell me about a time that they learned a skill outside of church. One leader in his late 60s told me about how he learned to sell tires in his first job in high school. He had spent a career buying and selling car dealerships, but half a century later he could still tell me in step-by-step detail how to sell a tire. I had no doubt that even after all that time, he could walk out of the church at that moment and sell a set of tires to a customer without batting an eye. That is what genuine development looks like. It is crucial to recognize that development is everywhere. When I say that the mission Jesus gave us is to make disciples, I do not mean that we are turning people who are not disciples into people who are. Rather, we are turning people into disciples of Jesus who have been disciples of someone or something else their whole lives. They may not be conscious, intentional, deliberate disciples, but they are disciples all the same. They are learning a way to live from the world around them. Christian disciple-making is nothing other than winning people from their default teachers to the superior teacher and instructing them to obey everything he commanded us. In 1983, Buddy and Jody Hoffman planted Grace Fellowship Church on this principle in a suburb of Atlanta. For Buddy and Jody, disciple-making happened in the world and on the job, not just in a classroom or a small group. When several leaders came on staff at Grace, Buddy and Jody invited them to live together in their basement. They interacted with Buddy and Jody in their real lives. The leaders tagged along when Buddy was ministering, and he gave them real ministry assignments of their own. The basement became a training greenhouse for learning and evaluation in ways that a thousand programs could never replicate. Buddy and Jody provided similar access even to those who were not living in the basement. As a result, a group of leaders developed in the way of Jesus, which affected not only their official ministry assignments, but also how they saw and viewed everything. Several years later, Buddy went down with an unexpected aortic dissection that almost cost him his life, yet these leaders rose up in his absence. 
By this time, Grace had planted a few campuses beyond the original site, which were each led by a leader he had trained. Once Buddy recovered, he returned as pastor, but not in the same way. Instead of going back to pastor the mother church, he chose to operate on the edges of the movement, planting two more campuses himself before he died. This began to move Grace from being a large megachurch with a few campuses to becoming a multiplying family of churches. More significantly, however, Buddy's Basement produced not only leaders, many of whom are still leading churches in the Grace Network, but a method of ministry and people development that has continued long after his death. Throughout the Grace family of churches, the basement continues to function. Sometimes it is still actual basements that house young leaders on staff. Other times, the basements are training initiatives like 10,000 Fathers for worship leaders and preachers, In still other cases, the basements are training centers in churches for ordinary disciples. At a recent meeting, Grace's senior pastors discussed the capacity for planting churches, arriving at this conclusion. We are not very good at planting churches, but we are good at raising leaders who succeed in planting churches, despite how bad we are at planting churches. This is what happens when a church embraces the upper room law of development when it puts growing people ahead of managing programs. Three areas of development. For us to invest in growing people and escape the trap of program management, we need to consider a bit more deeply why we tend to fall into the program rut. One reason that programs are popular is that leaders have not always thought carefully about what to pass on to people to encourage their development. By looking at three areas in which a disciple needs to develop, in addition to personal character, which is its own topic, we can see why programs alone never get it done. Doctrinal Development The first area usually considered when developing a disciple is doctrine. Here I use the term doctrine expansively to include any facts or ideas that are worthwhile for a Jesus follower to know and believe. Not only basic theology, but also the content of books of the Bible, moral principles, even Christian history. Doctrinal teaching does not have to be dry. As Howard Hendricks used to say, it's a sin to bore people with the Bible. But knowledge transfer is the point. The most important thing to understand about doctrine is that it is the dimension of development that is easiest to program. First, doctrinal development is labor-efficient. One person can convey it to thousands at once, or through books, audio, and video, even to millions more at the learner's own time, pace, and place. Second, doctrinal development requires no relationship between the teacher and the learners. They can be strangers to each other. Third, a doctrinal development can be formally structured in an orderly sequence that does not need to respond to changing circumstances. In fact, Following a logical progression may make it most effective. All these features of doctrine respond very well to an organized program. Here is the key takeaway for ministry strategy. Because doctrinal development is easiest to program, it usually gets programmed everywhere. Obviously, the teaching event is a good vehicle for doctrinal development, but information transfer dominates most small groups as well. Think about it. A group streams a video of a teacher from some big church somewhere and reads the book that teacher wrote. They then discuss its ideas, which is a helpful follow-up to make doctrine absorption sink in deeper. 
Finally, ideally, they share prayer requests and have supportive social time together, which, while beautiful and essential, frequently has little developmental value. The small group accomplishes the same thing as the big group, but with less music and more conversation, and maybe dessert. Doctrinal development is very important. We should have more of it, not less. But it does not train someone to live as a follower of Jesus. A person can hear many sermons, attend many small groups, and absorb many ideas, and not appreciably change in any area but their knowledge base. A sermon may and should inspire action, but without something more, it does not impel action. It might get listeners as far as appreciation, but by itself, it does not get them to transformation. As Jesus said in one of his own sermons, a better message than any we have ever preached, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Skills Development We move into the realm of training when we look at another area of development that churches often overlook. Skills. Disciples of Jesus do certain things simply because they are disciples of Jesus. Disciples pray for a variety of reasons and in diverse settings. Disciples worship God weekly with other disciples. Disciples pitch in to help out each other, their neighbors, and their church. Disciples read the Bible daily for knowledge and for insight. Disciples listen to hurting people and express compassion. Disciples give their material wealth for the relief of those who do not have it and for the spread of the gospel. Disciples reconcile with each other when one has hurt another. The list could go on. Nobody is born knowing how to do these things practically. There are skills that must be learned. To convey skills to disciples effectively, we have to go about it in a different way than we go about doctrinal development. First, even though efficient one-to-many resources can be helpful, a person rarely masters a skill just by reading a book or watching a video. Skills development usually requires intensive coaching from one trainer to a few apprentices. Second, a person can learn doctrine from someone they have never met. But skills development requires a moderately close relationship. The discipler and disciples may not have to divulge their deepest secrets or allow access into all areas of their lives, but they do need to get to know each other personally and honestly and have good rapport over a long term for skills to pass from one to the next. Third, as with doctrine, skills development often has some degree of formal structure. Learning things step by step in a prescribed order or method. But there is a large situational element too. If a disciple has trouble acquiring a skill, the discipler follows up one on one. Or sometimes an urgent situation means that a new skill needs to be learned right away. To train a disciple to develop a skill, the key is to reverse engineer how you learned it yourself. Recalling the businessman at Bellevue, I had him walk back through the process of selling a tire. If you do this with the development of any skill, you will always see four basic ingredients, modeling, practice, evaluation, and accountability in the setting of a relationship. Modeling. The discipler demonstrates the skill in its typical place of application with the disciple watching. Practice. The disciple tries to perform the skill repeatedly, sometimes first in a laboratory setting with the discipler's coaching. Evaluation. The disciple demonstrates the skill in its typical place of application with the discipler watching to praise and encourage and to note areas of improvement. 
accountability. There is an expectation of consistent participation and activity. Absenteeism and unpreparedness are called out. Skills are almost the most neglected area of Christian development. The average church spends little time investing in it. Churches driven by worship, relevance, and numbers are virtually allergic to modeling, practice, evaluation, and accountability, at least outside the staff, because they scare some people off. But if you're going to engage in organized disciple-making, you eventually have to do what Jesus did. Look for learners in the crowd of consumers and give them your best. One way I have attempted to fill the void of discipleship skills development is by partnering with Dave Rhodes to start a company called Unique. Unique equips churches to train every believer in the skills of gospel-centered life design, how to find their calling in life and live it out God's way. Unique is unlike much of what a person encounters in church. It is not primarily knowledge transfer like a Bible study, though it does communicate biblical principles. It is not primarily character formation, though it requires self-examination and often catalyzes inner development. Rather, Unique primarily trains people in the skills of living out their special assignment from God in all of life. Another venue of skills development is leadership development. Many churches struggling to win volunteer hours from busy people see this as their pressing need. But how to equip leaders to succeed remains a mystery to many. The best many do is doctrinal knowledge transfer. Congratulations on becoming an elder. Here's a systematic theology for you to read. By contrast, my good friend and leadership development maven, Mac Lake, insists that in addition to content about Jesus and the character of Jesus, leaders need to grow in the competence of Jesus. To that end, Mac has pioneered competency-focused leadership development content for the church. This kind of material does not attempt to cultivate leadership proficiency by mere reading or open-ended talking. Instead, it combines reading scripture and leadership content with practical assignments tailored to the core competencies of a given leadership role. Most importantly, it is not a self-directed course of training. Rather, it is explicitly built for a personal coaching relationship between an experienced leader and a trainee. In short, the curriculum goes beyond knowledge transfer to modeling, practice, evaluation, and accountability. Reproductive Development In rare instances that church leaders delineate the skills that are important for every Christian to have, they usually list something like sharing one's faith. That makes sense. Telling one's personal story of salvation and articulating the gospel to ask for a response are certainly skills to be learned. But I actually think they belong in a different category. Think of it this way. In order to become a mature, self-sufficient adult, you needed to master a variety of skills. But if you became a parent, you had to learn a whole other set of skills that is a level beyond the skills you require for your own survival. Growing up to maturity is one thing. Raising someone else to maturity is another matter. Reproductive development, like skills development, happens in a smaller circle with shorter distances between teacher and learners than doctrinal development does. This relationship is more intimate than skills development, and the structure is even more spontaneous, responding to situations in the person's life. In all respects, reproduction happens up close and personal. 
The law of development states that real church growth is about growing people, not adding programs. Reproduction is the reason why. When you see clearly what reproduction entails, you understand why programs cannot generate it any more than a factory can bear and raise a child. Programs and preaching are helps for spiritual parenting, but they are not spiritual parents. By themselves, at their best, programs and preaching yield people who invite others to programs and preaching. They do not produce reproducers. But producing reproducers is what disciple-making is all about. In the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus tells his disciples to make disciples. He says that this includes teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded his disciples, including the Great Commission. Therefore, if you would obey the Great Commission... You have not succeeded until you have also taught someone else to obey all Jesus' commands, including the Great Commission. In other words, you have not obeyed the Great Commission until the disciple you make also makes a disciple, until you have reproduced a reproducer. The church is nothing other than the group of people among whom this is happening. The services, the songs, and the sermons, the budgets, the buildings, and the boards, even the good deeds— Everything in the church that holds most leaders' attention most of the time are not church unless they are usefully helping ordinary disciples who are reproducing Christ in others. In C.S. Lewis's memorable words, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men to Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Revolutionary Coaching A pastor named Mark was a professional tennis coach in his earlier days. When Mark would be approached by a new client, he would ask the person one question at the outset. Do you want to improve your weekend game or do you want to win a tournament? The question was important because it set the guidelines of instruction. If the goal was improving the player's weekend game, the method was evolutionary tweaking what the player was already doing and adding some new techniques. But if the goal was winning a tournament, the method was revolutionary, forcing the player to unlearn their technique and starting over from the beginning. When Jesus coaches us, he is not about minor improvements. He is about winning the tournament. He wants the Holy Spirit to radically rearrange a person's responses to everything that happens in their life so that they respond like he would. This revolutionary change does not happen by itself in a big group or even a small group a few times a month. It happens in the intimate spaces and practical proving grounds at all times of day. Jesus knew that most people who liked listening to him were not ready for this level of coaching. This is why he said things like, Small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew chapter 7 verse 14. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Seekers have the virtue of fortitude, persevering courage. Seekers take initiative. Seekers want to be trained, not just try or learn a few tricks. Seeker should not be a label just for people who are not disciples of Jesus yet. All true disciples are seekers who never stop seeking. 
Fortitude is what makes them press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 14. On the other side of the coin, leaders who are making disciples need fortitude as well. They need persevering courage to concentrate their energies on making disciples when there are many distractions of the good that can divert them from the great. There are people who would actually prefer to learn a few tricks to being fully trained, people who prefer programs that meet their needs as conveniently as possible. There are even professional rewards for managing programs over growing people, not to mention that it always feels good to see more people show up. Yet, leaders in future church have the fortitude to prioritize the seekers that Jesus prioritized, even when the crowd of consumers presents distractions. They don't settle for immediate results that come by managing programs, but instead give themselves to an unbroken chain of people, helping people grow over the long haul. That's real church growth.